Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. If you remember, at the point we paused our journey through the book of Revelation, uh, back before Christmas now, uh, we saw the dragon who represents the devil, Satan, being decisively beaten by Christ. If you recall that the dragon was still very, very busy trying to make trouble against God's people with the limited time that he has left. And here in chapter 13, we are introduced to two of his dreadful allies. In verses 1 to 10, uh, we are exposed to the sea beast, which represents the hostile world system which demands our full allegiance. And in the second half of the chapter, we're confronted with the land beast, which represents the world's deceitful propaganda machine, giving full support and credibility to the first beast. Now, before we take a step back and look a little more closely at those two pretty hideous monsters, can we just admit This is all ever so slightly weird, isn't it? In fact, some of us might be thinking this seems quite far-fetched. There are some cultures in the world right now that are overly fearful and overly obsessed with all of this stuff. But I think much of white Western society has gone way too far the other way. According to One of the characters in the film, The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And I might be wrong, but I reckon many of us have fallen for this way of thinking. It's like we know the Bible talks about the devil. We know the, the Bible makes reference to his evil forces at work in the world. And so we might say we, we have some kind of nominal belief in their existence. But if truth be told, it doesn't really impact how we view the world around us on a day-to-day basis. And so we're confused when life is tough and when things go wrong and when living for Jesus just feels like a real struggle most of the time. It's like we're innocently walking through the middle of a battlefield with bombs going off everywhere, oblivious to the reality that there is a battle raging all around us. Which is why I think the book of Revelation and passages like this one that we're going to be looking at today they are such a phenomenal gift to us because it it zooms in on how exactly the devil is at work in our world today so that we can recognize his work and, more importantly, resist it. As Sun Tzu, the 6th century BC Chinese general, once put it, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. And so against that backdrop, let's resist the temptation to be either cynical or fearful and together take a closer look at these beasts that right now are attacking us and the tactics they use against us. 
Let's start with the sea beast. First thing to point out about the sea beast is it is not particularly obvious. Now, this might at first sound a little strange, but just take another look at verse 1 here. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. This description uh, takes us back to uh, a passage in the Old Testament. Anyone know which book of the Bible that this is related to? I hear some murmuring, but I can't quite make it out. It's the book of Daniel, uh, and in particular, Daniel chapter 7, where if you are familiar with the passage, um, four beasts arise from the sea. The first beast is like a lion. The second is like a bear. The third is like a leopard, and the fourth has ten horns. And in Daniel, these beasts represent a succession of empires from the Babylonians to the Medes and Persians to the Greeks and so on. But here in Revelation, these four beasts from Daniel get combined into this single super beast with qualities of each of those tyrannical empires all rolled into one. And so already as we read this, we're discovering that this beast represents a hostile world system. And in the immediate context when this was first written, it would have been understood by the readers as the Roman Empire. But just to say, the devil's tactics in Rome are actually pretty similar to the ones he's used down through history. And so, as we read this, we're going to find it is still incredibly relevant for every age including ours today. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshipped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshipped the beast who is as great as the beast, they exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? So, John's saying here that the Roman Empire, that this whole world system in which he and his hearers lived, is like this grotesque monster which has gained its authority from none other than Satan himself and which Satan is using to make all the citizens of Rome inadvertently worship him. Now, although the imagery of beasts would have been probably more familiar to John's hearers back in the first century than perhaps it is for us today, they still might not have seen the Roman Empire in this way at that point in time. I mean, some of the churches that John's writing to, they certainly had seen the beastly nature of Rome up close. But other churches had made themselves very much at home in the empire, I think it's fair to say, were enjoying its perks. It's like they were blind to the evil lurking underneath. For example, take the church in Laodicea. 
Uh, as we saw uh, probably this time last year, as we looked at the seven letters to the churches earlier on in Revelation, the church in Laodicea were rich and they were prosperous. That They seemed to love being part of the empire. It delivered everything they dreamt of and more. I think of the church in Thyatira. Again, they appeared to feel very at home in the empire. In fact, too at home, as it happens. That Their leaders said it was fine for them to participate in idol feasts. But as we read in the letter to that church, Jesus had an altogether different view. And really, part of the point of this chapter that we are homing in on today is to pull back the curtain and show these churches and us what's really going on beneath the surface. John's saying here, look, do you realize the battle that you're in? That the, the world system that we live in, the culture all around us, is not neutral. That don't you see how it's demanding a loyalty from us which should belong to God and God alone? We need to wake up to the fact this world system, this culture, this society we live in is actually Satan's beast. And as we discover in verse 4, when people give their primary allegiance to this system, they're actually worshipping Satan. John's saying, can't you see the danger we're in here? Now, I'm not suggesting in all of this that our situation is exactly the same as theirs. There are, of course, parts of the world right now, like North Korea or China or Iran, where the system is obviously beast-like, and we desperately need to pray for our brothers and sisters in those places. But we also need to be aware of the enemy's tactics generally so that we recognize them when we see them slightly closer to home. Because, as I've been saying, it's not always obvious. Instead of outright persecution, it's more like ideas and actions that are way more subtle, but no less evil. That they're beast-like in the way they demand loyalty to their philosophies, their vocabulary, their sexual ethics, their priorities, their methods, which on the surface can all appear incredibly attractive, but are ultimately designed to destroy us and wreck our lives. Now, one of the ways this passage tries to underline the sheer seriousness of all of this is the way it keeps presenting this hostile world system as an alternative or as a counterfeit Christ. For example, just as Jesus received the kingdoms of this world from his father, so the beast receives his power and authority from the dragon in verse 2. So he's, he's like Jesus, but his enthronement is a counterfeit. Or just as Jesus is described as being slain and yet alive in chapter 5, so the beast in verse 3 is described as having a mortal wound, but this mortal wound was healed. And so it's a counterfeit resurrection. 
Well, just as the lamb conquers by suffering death for others in chapter 12, here the beast conquers by inflicting death on others in verse 7. It's a counterfeit victory. Well, just as Jesus redeems people from every tribe and language and people and nation in chapter 5, here the beast in verse 7 is given tyrannical dominion over every tribe and language and people and nation. It's a counterfeit church. Well, just as the sea beast is presented as a counterfeit Jesus, that there's something kind of going on with the dragon being like a counterfeit father and the land beast being presented as a counterfeit to the Holy Spirit. So just as the Holy Spirit seals us as belonging to Jesus, so the land beast puts a mark on his people who worship the dragon. Or just as the Holy Spirit points to and glorifies Christ So the land beast desires that people worship the sea beast in verse 12. Or just as the Holy Spirit confirms the gospel through miraculous signs, so the land beast performs great signs in verse 13. And so together, the dragon and these two beasts are being presented again and again and again as this counterfeit trinity. Now look, don't worry if you didn't quite follow all of that. Even I was struggling to follow all of that, but I just wanted to try and show you what John's doing in this passage. The big point is, John is trying to make these alternatives very plain. And the question this passage is asking us is, which one are we going to serve? Which one will we look to for our life and for our identity for our satisfaction, for our security? Will we serve this hostile world system, which is a counterfeit version of God's good plan for the world, or will we worship and give our full allegiance to the one true God? Now, whether we like it or not, there's no such thing as neutrality in all of this. There is no middle ground. I'm reminded of Joshua's powerful statement back in Joshua 24, where he says, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Like John in this passage, Joshua saying, Don't think you can stay on the fence. If you're not going to serve the Lord, you will end up serving idols instead. Either we follow the Lamb, Jesus, wherever he goes, even to death, or we will end up worshipping the beast. You know, the, the enemy always wants us to think that we can have a little bit of Christian faith on a Sunday in a meeting like this, alongside a life of living like the world the other six days of the week. But John is trying to wake us up here to the truth. There is a choice we need to make. But it's often very subtle. It's not always obvious. Second thing, just want to point out here, is that resistance can often seem pointless. In verse 4, the people exclaimed, Who is as great as the beast? Who is able to fight against him. Look, 
Our enemy wants us to think that he is unbeatable, that there is no point putting up a fight against the peer pressure at school or the coercion at work. It's just inevitable. Or or when we're battling against temptation, against sin, he, he kind of whispers in our ear, this is just who you are. You were made this way. You can't help it. Resistance is useless. And it certainly seems unstoppable, doesn't it? We see this in verse 7 where we're told, and the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It's a chilling verse, isn't it? We're being told the enemy is going to try and attack us. And what's our strategy supposed to be? Well, we're given it in verses 9 and 10. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. On the surface, at least, this seems a very odd strategy, doesn't it? The enemy is going to try and kill us. What do we need to do? We need to remain faithful and be willing to die. You see, the way to conquer the enemy is to follow the example of Jesus and be willing to lay down our lives. Because ultimately... It's by losing our lives that we conquer in the end. So we saw in chapter 12, verse 11, they have defeated him, that the saints have gone before. They've defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. You know, our calling isn't to stay alive or out of trouble at all costs. Our calling is to stay faithful to Christ at all costs. We're to love Jesus the Lamb more than we love our own lives. That's fundamentally what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if you know your church history, you'll know that actually this has been the battle strategy of believers down through the ages, being willing to lose status, reputation, careers, being willing to lose their lives where necessary. That's how the church wins in the end. So we've seen that the enemy's tactics range from luring us in with subtle deceit all the way through to attempting to intimidate and convince us that resistance is pointless. But actually, he's got a whole lot of other weapons in his armory, which brings us onto the second beast, the land beast. Verse 11, then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. He had two horns like those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So this beast is a bit different, isn't it? It's way more subtle, 
It kind of looks harmless enough, but when it speaks, its message is straight from the dragon. And the whole aim of this monster is to persuade us to worship the first beast, the hostile world system, the culture around us. And it has various strategies to make us do this. One is that it gives religious backing to the first beast. Look again at verse 13. He did astounding miracles, even making fire flash down to earth from the sky while everyone was watching. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belong to this world. There's a long history, isn't there, of religion being used by the devil to promote this hostile world system, as well as all the world religions that worship other gods. There's actually a way more subtle, nominal version of Christianity that kind of inoculates people to the full truth. It's kind of like one small drop of truth can immunize you from the radical claims of the gospel. It enables you to kind of compromise with the culture on all the key issues of the day. I think the cunning of this strategy is it then alienates true gospel-believing believers as being awkward and extreme. They're kind of like the fundamentalists. It's like false religion is used to play genuine believers offside. But the land beast doesn't just give religious backing to the system. It also gives economic backing. Verse 16, he required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, in the original context, getting ahead in business required very often participating in these idol feasts, paying homage to false gods, and remaining faithful to Christ and avoiding these kind of networking dinners would have been very costly financially and socially. And again, that is one of the enemy's tried and tested tactics, kind of excluding believers from trade and getting ahead in the workplace. I don't know, perhaps you have personally experienced something of the injustice of this, or maybe even the temptation to just go along with it. it. It can just wear us down over time. Now, if you remember back to chapter 7, we saw, didn't we, that believers have a seal on their foreheads. It's like a stamp or a mark of God's ownership. What we see here is that actually everyone in the world has some kind of mark on their foreheads. They're one or the other they are sealed by God, or they have the mark of the beast. Now, I'm not going to get caught up in this for very long, because we've only got seven minutes left. But I just want you to be clear, this is symbolic. 
I don't think it's anything to do with vaccines or microchips or barcodes. It's all, I think, about the way we think. It's not what's on our heads, it's what's in our heads. It's what we value, it's what we do with our lives. It's about our internal character and commitments being lived out in such a way that we end up being marked by them. Will we be marked by our devotion to Jesus or the beast? Will we be marked by a pursuit of holiness or a pursuit of everything the world has to offer? We're all marked one way or the other. Everyone has given their soul to Jesus or the beast. And once again, the question we're being asked here is which one would we rather? In the short term, the mark of the beast is going to be pretty useful for us. It's going to put us on the inside. It's going to help us get ahead. It's going to increase our popularity. But don't be fooled. You desperately need to read the small print is not as attractive as it first appears. It is much better to have the seal of God himself, to be protected from the judgment to come. Now, knowing what the enemy is trying to do, I think it gives us tremendous resources to resist him more effectively. It's like, but we can see through his tactics a bit better, and we can fight against them. It makes us feel indignant. I'm not standing for that, rather than just caving in and going with the flow. And I think that's what this passage is preparing us to do. But it also does much more than that. It also tells us why it is so worthwhile for us to resist the enemy, even when it's costly for us. Which leads on to my final point. Those who resist have a glorious destiny. Those who resist have a glorious destiny. Chapter 14. Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. It's like the sound of many harpists playing together. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever he goes. They've been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. They've told no lies. They are without blame. We're being assured here that those who resist will have this magnificent future, will be safe for eternity. There will be joy and much celebration There'll be wonderful intimacy with our Savior, all within a renewed and glorious world. And so, yes, admittedly, it is going to be really hard following Jesus. 
but we know it will be worth it in the end. And I use that word destiny in this heading deliberately. It's what we are destined for. Let's take a look at this remarkable verse that we skipped over earlier. Back in chapter 13 and verse 8, it says, All the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. Incredibly helpfully, this passage zooms out and shows us how our present day-to-day battles are part of a much bigger story, a story that stretches backwards from before the world was made and a story that stretches forwards right into eternity future. The real reason that you are a Christian, if you're a Christian with us today, is that God has set his love on you from before the world was made. And his purpose for you, even back then when he first wrote your name in the book of life, was that you would be redeemed, rescued, made whole by Jesus' death, and that you would one day join this great gathering, praising the Lamb for all eternity. All of which, once more, begs the question, Which side are you on? Which side are you on? This passage, it's drawn the curtain back for us so that we can see the unseen war raging all around us. Not not just in this world, but in our lives as well. Whether we realize it or not, we have an enemy who's engaged with a war for our soul. His goal is to alienate us, alienate you from Christ and claim you as his own. It's not that he cares about you. He has absolutely no good intentions for you whatsoever. He simply wants to use you and abuse you in his futile attempt to undermine God's good plan for the world. Your enemy wants to convince you that Jesus really isn't worth your allegiance or your radical obedience. He wants to convince you that the things and the experiences and the ideologies of this world are what will make you happy. He wants to dupe you into living as though this life is all there is. The question is, will you fall for his deceitful lies and malicious schemes Or will you resolve to stand up and fight? Will you put to death the lie that you can casually align yourself to Christ while giving allegiance to the philosophies and ways of the world? Will you today look to Christ and Christ alone? Will you be marked out as his and his alone? Will you be marked out as different from the people around you because you refuse to compromise but choose instead the path of purity? Will you refuse to submit to the thinking of this world but instead submit to the truth of God's word even when that truth is costly and incredibly inconvenient? Will you reckon with the reality 
that overcoming and conquering may at times look like being conquered, but allegiance to Christ may cost you everything in this life. But when we love Christ more than we love our own lives, then we cannot lose. If I lose my job or the chance of promotion, I have an eternal inheritance awaiting me. If I lose some friends or get rejected by my family, I have a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. If I lose my comfortable life, I know I can't hold on to it forever anyway. I'm going to finish some words from Nancy Guthrie. She says this, There is inherent suffering in dying to oneself and saying no to earthly desires, not just once, but again and again over the long haul. This is at the very heart of endurance and faith. Don't discount it. Pursue it. As you do, receive the assurance that is given in Revelation and anticipate the promises in this book that are given to all who overcome. As you overcome your appetites for the things that do not take you closer to Christ, as you overcome your propensity to always put yourself first, and as you overcome your fear of what other people will think if you identify with Christ, you can be sure that all that is promised in this book to those who overcome life and reward and blessing will be yours when you see Christ face to face. I want to give you just a minute to reflect on where this lands for you. And then Dawn's going to jump up and close us out. But just reflect for a moment. Earlier on, we sang that song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I want to call you to live out those words. Today, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time to resolve I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back.